you're listening to the Who Are You Really podcast. A podcast that features interviews with the captivating people we've met. Liv and I have learned that everybody has a story. Whether it surprises you, shocks you, or resonates with you, stories have a way of connecting us, offering new perspectives, and acting as a reminder that we're not in this alone. And there's nothing we love more than bridging people together in our little big planet. We'll get vulnerable, raw, and real with our guests from all over the world. I'm your host, Lydia Clemensovich. And I'm your host, Olivia Poglianich. Welcome to our safe space. No judgment, no egos, all the feels and all the fun. So pull up a seat, get cozy, and let's dig a little deeper together. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here. Today's episode is very near and dear to my heart. It is with Don Ezra, or as I call him and have only known him as, Grandpa Don. And we allude to that story a little bit in the beginning for why I call him Grandpa Don, but he has been pretty as similar as you get to a grandfather figure in my life ever since I was born I've known him as that and I love him so much he has always supported me and my sisters and I've always looked up to him as somebody who's incredibly intelligent and passionate and giving and present and I always love our conversations especially as I've transitioned into adulthood and learning more about life and different subject matter. And so I thought he was such a natural guest for our podcast. Yeah, he was an incredible guest and he had so much wisdom to share about so many different things from his childhood in Kolkata, India, to his very interesting marriage setup, which he'll dive into more. It involves living on two different continents and he dives into life after his very successful career and what that's been like for him, including a really fascinating perspective on the meaning of happiness, something we all are curious about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So grab your bevy of choice, sit back and get ready to really learn from somebody who has lived quite a life at 76. He's, he ain't stopping anytime soon. (laughs) He's continuing learning and we're so inspired by that. So um, get ready. Welcome, everybody. We are on air to another episode of the podcast with Don Ezra, or as I call him, Grandpa Don. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. I'm so excited to talk to you, Don. It's an honor to be on the podcast, and it's it's an honor to be called Grandpa Don by you, Lydia. How did that nickname come about? I'm very curious. Well, I guess, Lydia, um, one of your grandpas had passed away before you were born. And working with your mom, we were so close. I mean, the, the, the company culture was the people you were working with became friends. It was one, one of the very lucky elements of my life. And we were very, very close. And I, I just became Grandpa Don, which is a huge, a huge honor to me. 
Oh, you're going to make me emotional. Yeah, to all the people who have been listening, uh, it's not even just an endearing term. I actually do think of him as a grandfather figure, and he's been a part of my life and my sister's lives ever since we've been born, in addition to his lovely wife, Susan, as well. And we're just so lucky to have them, you know, be a part of our our chapters and our journeys and from Christmases to birthdays to trips around the world. We've been so, so lucky to have the both of them in our lives. So it's such a privilege and honor to have you as a guest, quite honestly. Thank you. (laughs) I am so excited to dive into all of the incredible stories that Lyd just gave me a brief overview about. Um, But I guess let's start with your relationship with Susan, since she just touched on Susan as well. I heard you guys have what you call a commuter marriage. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I find that incredibly interesting. Yes. It's not something that you plan. It's something that happens accidentally. And the company I I, I was working with, Russell Investments, we, we started the Canadian branch and all that kind of thing became my second family. It was just a a wonderful place. They sent me to London for three years. And so we were there. And they said, we want you to be there permanently. And I said, well, that causes tax complications. And they said, well, why don't you come back to the States and you work out your tax situation and then go back. And so Sue stayed in London. I was in the States. I went back every month, et cetera, et cetera, to keep in touch with the London community. And finally, I went back permanently. Only their sense of permanently wasn't quite as long as I expected. I arrived on a Sunday morning, and on the Thursday, I got a call saying, oh, we've made such a big mistake. Would you come back? We'd much rather have you back in New York than in London. And I I was so stunned. All I could say was, can you give me till the weekend? (laughs) Anyway, I went back. And then Sue started coming back and forth. And six months into this, I said, you know, this is crazy. And she said, yeah. And I said, you should be here with me in New York. She said, yeah. We said, so we should sell the place because we, we, bought, we bought a flat in London because we were going to live there permanently. So we should sell it. She said, yeah. I said, so when you go back, start the sales process. She said, no. So what, what do you mean, no? These were baby steps. There's no room to change from yes to no. I'm a very logical person. <laughs> Eventually it came out, she said, if you sell it, you'll never get around to it. And the longer it takes, the happier I am, because frankly, I'd rather be in London. Yeah. I said, oh, okay. So if that's what it is, why don't you stay in London and you come over every month? And this is going to be expensive. And when we can't afford it anymore, you come back to New York. Okay. And here we are 20 years later, we're still able to afford it. And so it's been like that. And she comes over for a week every month and I go there three or four times a year, except, of course, I haven't seen her since I think it was the 8th of February last year. So it's just over a year. Oh, Uh, because of the pandemic? The pandemic. And so we're both we're both stuck where we are. We FaceTime every day. And I suspect for her, this is a very comfortable way to be married to me. (laughs) (laughs) Is she an introvert? Um. Not an introvert so much as, well, you, you'll, you'll see why having occasional contact with me is such a lovely thing. I don't know. I'm already thinking, can you be my grandpa, Don, too? 
and, and only see you occasionally. That would be perfect. <laughs> what do you chalk up then your strong marriage after all of those 20 years? Like maybe, of course, you say you FaceTime every day, but is there something else that kind of keeps that solid? Oh, yes. The fact that, I mean, this, this is, we, we've been married 48 years. In my mind, this is our second marriage. We just never got divorced. And any other couple probably would have got divorced because, well, I, I, I think the secret ingredient is, is Sue herself and, and her character. But I, I have an extreme character. So here, here's, here's the background. Let's, let's, let, let's start there. Forgive me. This is going to go all over the place. That's and I'll okay. probably get lost somewhere. And you have to remind me where, what we originally started on. But um, so my, my family background is that I was born in Calcutta, India, from a Middle Eastern family that had come from Baghdad, Aleppo, places like that. But they'd come 200 years before. Mm-hmm. And for 200 years, they were there and they were very insular. And they all intermarried all the time, right down to my parents' generation. My parents are first cousins. So genetically, I'm extremely concentrated. <laughs> whether I have good points or bad points, and the more concentrated you are, the more they tend to be bad points. They are very, very, very concentrated. Um, And among among my characteristics, which actually came about, so let, let me get the next phase of the family story before I get to why this is our second marriage. Um, I, I, I went to I went to boarding school in a place called Darjeeling in the foothills of the Himalayas because I had asthma and I needed cleaner air than you could get in Calcutta. And um, after four years of that, when I was 10, that finally stopped and I started going to day school in Calcutta. I I think of life through the eyes of this 10 year old kid in Calcutta, because that's when my sort of conscious memory and conscious experience with the world starts. So uh, this fabulously lucky 10 year old kid. But, but at the time, the luck was that the school I was going to was in the next street. And it was the best school there was in Calcutta. And it was fantastic. And Jewish kid in India, we'll send him to a Jesuit school. What else would you do? I mean, let's confuse the kid religiously. <laughs> but they were absolutely fantastic. The teachers were absolutely wonderful. And they were the making of me more than subsequently my going to Cambridge, more than my becoming an actuary, more than anything else. It was the teachers who nurtured me. And, and what they fed was my innate sense of curiosity and wanting to investigate. You know how a, a, you explain something to a child and the child says, well, 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 why? And you say, well, because so-and-so. And then the child says, well, well, why? And goes, and eventually you get fed up and say, well, because that's the way it is, or because I said so. Well, they <laughs> encouraged us to dig deeper and deeper, get to another degree of, of penetration, et cetera, et cetera. And I just love this. And it became my, my ultimate characteristic. And so that intellectual side of constantly why, 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 and, 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 and investigate became a very strong characteristic that I was obviously born with. My, my father was like that. I mean, my, my father considered himself to be at the center of the universe. And if you disagreed with him, well, he was right and you were wrong. The word opinion was absolutely superfluous to the English language because you were either right or wrong, depending on how close you were to his point of view. And I grew up 
exactly this way. Partly because I inherited these genes and partly because the Jesuits really encouraged this kind of thing. And, and, and so I became, um, and now, 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 we're, now we're getting to, 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 to the marriage problems. I became this person who wanted nothing but objective intellectual stuff. And don't argue, this is the way it is. And for God's sake, don't be emotional. I mean, you're an intelligent woman, for goodness sake, snap out of it. And this, when you have a steady diet of this, this is not helpful, particularly if you're a sensitive person. And so Sue and I were almost diametrically opposite from, from the kind of people who should have got married. And this was really, really, really a very difficult period. And really, we, sh we should have got divorced. And, and just to show you how bad it was, it was what, 20, 25 years ago, I, I just turned 50 or thereabouts. But our son, David, went off to university. So Catherine, our daughter, who was younger, is now alone with us. And her best friend living across the street had just left because her parents had to leave to go to another city for another job. And so suddenly, Catherine finds she's alone with two rather quarrelsome and unpleasant parents. Well, one at least was unpleasant. And she just could not live like this and decided she wanted to go to boarding school and found a way to attract our attention and tell us she wanted to go to boarding school. And so she went off to boarding school and Sue and I needed to resolve things. And Sue said that I was the first friend she had whose parents were divorced. And she never, ever wanted to get into that situation. So that was one of the things, her, her determination was one of the things that, that kept us together. And the other was that despite all the arguing, we were still best friends. If anything happened to one of us, the other was the first person we'd want to tell about it. And so after Catherine left, we decided, let's go to therapy. Of course, being the horrible person I was, I wanted it to be joint therapy so that the independent therapist could demonstrate that I was right and Sue was wrong. So, I mean, ser ser seriously, it, it was as bad as that and I was as bad as that. So we, we, we found someone, Rosalie Thomas, who, who gave us separate bouts of therapy. And I have no idea what Sue and Rosalie talked about. But I know that as far as I was concerned, very, very gradually and with a personality like mine, it took some years. But she made me realize that it was perfectly valid for other people to have opinions. And sometimes they were valid opinions. They weren't always wrong if, if I disagreed with them. And different people were built differently, etc., etc. And things you would take for granted. But to my concentrated mind, this was all new stuff. And I had to learn this. And I wasn't terribly eager to learn. But gradually, she got to me. And not only was it okay for people to have their own points of view, but they could also be emotional about it sometimes. That was, that was okay too. And after a few years of this, the two of us moved to London and really that was a new start. And to me, that was our second marriage. And so that, that's, that, that's what continues today. And I, I think, and actually let's take that a step further because this is sort of linked to the therapy. That was in my 50s. When I was in my 60s, I underwent a second bout of therapy. 
uh, for an entirely different reason. That was at the suggestion of my doctor in New York. They, this was when I was back in New York now. And this time my learning wasn't about other people, it was about myself, because I was still suppressing my own emotions. It was okay for other people to be emotional. And it wasn't until my best friend at work told me, you're an incredibly emotional person. I said, don't be silly, I'm not. And he said, well, <laughs> listen to you now. Said, oh my goodness, you're absolutely right. What do I do about this? Anyway, so gradually he got me to recognize my emotions, to express my emotions. And all my life I thought emotions were a sign of weakness. And now they're a sign of enjoyment and fulfillment and all that kind of stuff in addition to everything else so i i delight in my emotions i i enjoy them i've never been happier but it took two bouts of therapy and and a a wonderful wife i get oh there was one other thing that really has caused the the happiness of the marriage and that is her family so my surname is ezra so susan went from susan dalgetty to susan ezra no, it's actually, that's just because that's what convention dictates. I really joined the Dalgetty family. I should, have, I should have changed my name to Don Dalgetty because I thrived in that family. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. All of us who have married into the Dalgetty clan, Scottish clan, um, have found a happy escape really from all the issues that we've had in our own families because the Dalgettys were just lovely people and the two sisters um, are like their parents and their best friends no rivalry between them etc and th this is relatively this is relatively rare and, and and so we've all taken refuge in the Dalgetty clan and so it's it, it's Sue's own personality but her family as well that are the foundation of our marriage and why why we can carry on happily today. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think that was an incredible story that took us through the years of, of the ups and the downs in such an honest way. And I feel like you're so self-aware. And in the beginning of that, there was a lot of negative self-talk that, I don't know, I wasn't there. I mean, maybe not being emotional can be something to perceive as negative, but you've come out, out of it so profoundly wise and humble, I think, and everybody makes mistakes and everybody has qualities about them that they may not like. So, so, based so, on the so some of those qualities can be extreme. Yeah, that was the problem. And I never realized it. I, I thought like my father, I was at the center of the universe. And the realization that I'm actually in a little galaxy right on the edge of the universe, physically as well and mentally as well. That, that, that was a shock to me. In fact, I knew my father could not be at the center of the universe because I was there. So how could he be there? It's a, I'm joking, but I mean, I really was that extreme. And it was really with, with Sue and the kids. I wasn't a very tolerant. I was, I was an overbearing. I, today, I would use the word bullying, husband and father. After two bouts of therapy, I'm at peace with the person I am. I'm just not happy about the person I used to be. But it's, it's an internal difference. People outside would never know the difference, but I know the difference. I mean, but, but those, those intense characteristics are still there. I mean, some people still think of me as Sheldon, you know, the character on the Big Bang Theory who's emotionless. And, I mean, they, they, they call me Sheldon. So I, I, asked, I asked Catherine once, I mean, am I Sheldon? 
because she she knows me. She's she's offering me. Thank God she and David both, in addition to my sense of logic, also have Sue's empathy. But I said, am I Sheldon? And she said very honestly, you know, you, you don't have to dig very far to find the Sheldon in you, but it doesn't define you. And that was my release. It doesn't wow. define me. So I'm willing now to admit to all the Sheldon-like characteristics. In fact, that's probably what gave me such a successful career. But it's, but it's also what causes my family to laugh at me all the time, the way we laugh at Sheldon. I mean, I do some of the most stupid things you could ever <laughs> imagine. My, my, my father-in-law, I, I got on like a, like a house on fire. And the other son-in-law, Ron, we gave, we gave my mother-in-law, Margaret, an awful time because husband, John, sons-in-law, Don and Ron, and she would, Don, Ron, Ron, John. And <laughs> as good people, we would all stand up as soon as she called out. And the girls told us, no, 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 wait till she's finished. And the last name she says is the one she really wants. <laughs> but um, Ron looked at John and me and said, you know, for two intelligent people, you do some of the most stupid things sometimes. And the entire family burst out laughing, as did John and me, because it's absolutely true. We do the most stupid things. So I'm the butt of the family jokes because I'm slow. They're all quick-witted. And so they, they come at me with, with snap things, which are really funny. And the next morning, I have a terrific response. But it's not much use the next morning. But I, I, I'm grateful for the fact that having been such an overbearing husband and father, I haven't been thrown out of the family or thrown out of the adopted families, the, fam the extended families. And I'm, I'm very grateful for just being accepted now affectionately. I'm very lucky. You just touched on so many things, Grandpa Don, in that whole journey. And I think one of the most important was that you said, you know, that that was a part of you, but it doesn't define you. And just speaking to you, your, you said your first bout of therapy was in your 50s. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's incredibly inspiring, I think, to listeners who, especially for our younger audiences, who we think that, you know, like, there's so much life beyond and our, our beings and our journeys and our personalities are quite malleable like of course there's things that we can remain rooted in but so many things can change and adapt and I think your story is a really amazing inspiring example and that now how you're thriving at 76 and have been and so from you know all of these journeys what do you think is one of the most important lessons you've learned I wish I wish I had been different but I, I think I think one can adapt. One can adapt. One has to be willing to adapt. If I hadn't had the incentive that I would not only lose my wife, I would lose my best friend. That 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 was too much to give up. And whatever it took to stay with my best friend, that was something I, I, I wanted to maintain. And I and I have no problem. I mean, if you if you go back to the Calcutta Jewish community, the idea that someone would have therapy. Good heavens, no. I mean, this is, this is an insult. You must be an inferior person. It's a, it, it, was, it was a very old-fashioned insular community. And mm -hmm. no one would ever admit to doing this kind of thing. No one would ever say, you know, in public, I, I, I'm saying it to you because I've, the family knows it. I've said it before. I mean, this is, this is really our second marriage. As I say, we just, we just never got divorced. But this is an entirely different relationship for the first one. Thank goodness. 
maybe it also ties into the curiosity you said you had since you were a child, right? Like having an air of curiosity towards yourself about why you were that way. And you explained it all to us very articulately, you know, your father did this and told you that, and you, you absorbed a lot of things from childhood as we all do, but perhaps somewhere in there, you, you had a sense of humble curiosity for your own life experience and were able to, like you said, evolve and adapt and have a 2.0 marriage. I, I would agree with one of the two words you used, humble curiosity. It wasn't humble. There was a curiosity. I've never been a humble person. I, I've always been very focused on the kinds of things I'm interested in. I'm no better than anyone else, but I'm certainly no worse than anyone else. I'm, I'm not a humble person. I just try to take, this is again the, the logician in me. I try to take me as I am. This is who I am. Let's deal with it. Let's get on with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to, today I'd laugh at that, but at the time that, that was a driving force. Well, how would you define humble then? In a totally different way from the way in which it's used today. Or oh, something big happened to me. Oh, I felt so humble. No, you didn't feel humble. You felt very proud that you'd achieved something that others wouldn't have achieved in your circumstances. And so I, I, I don't, I, and, and say, oh, I feel humble as if it's, oh, I feel such a small person. No, you don't. Your head's big and, and, and you're loving it. And, and so I, I don't agree with the way that important people say, oh, it was such a humbling experience because it wasn't to them. But equally, I don't think there's necessarily a sense of pride because pride is when you've achieved something that someone else wouldn't have been able to in your circumstances. And as far as I'm concerned, um, I've been very, very, very lucky with so many circumstances in my life. So many things have suddenly happened, changed my life completely. And as it happens, I've thrived with them, but not a sense of pride that, you know, I've achieved something in there that others in the same circumstances wouldn't have been able to. I was, I was just lucky. I mean, my, my whole career, for example, I, I, I was an actuary. And as it turned out, in the States, actuaries didn't get involved with pension funds investments. They got involved with the liabilities. Well, I'd been trained in the UK. And in the UK, they teach you not only about the liabilities, they teach you about the assets too. And so when I joined Russell back in the late 70s, early 80s, the fact that I was an actuary there was a revelation to everyone else because I was able to say, oh, in that set of circumstances, did you realize so-and-so? Oh, no, they never did. But the fact that I, I, I knew all this stuff and, and had a different perspective from every, everyone else caused me to write papers and so on. And again, just, just think, of, think of the world through the eyes of this 10-year-old kid in Calcutta and think of all the lucky, wonderful things that I could not possibly have imagined. I mean, I didn't have much of an imagination anyway, so I had no idea what my future life was going to be. All these elements of luck. Now, you, you have to be able to use the luck, but you can't control whether the luck happens or not. And I've had so many of these lucky episodes in my life. I mean, I, I, I see my life as um, living in a series of rooms. You're in a room. You explore the room mm. and you see there are doors in the room. So one day you decide to go through the door and you find you're in another room. And so you explore that room and one day you go through another door. And each room is logically connected to the room before. But if you, if you look from a distance high above and try and plot a path through, 
there is absolutely no logic connecting that. And, and that to me has been just the, the pure luck that some of the decisions I happened to make with a, with a small perspective turned out to work fantastically for me. So much pure luck. And I think also just like you touched on it earlier, Grandpa Don, like gratitude as well. I think, I mean, I was just listening to a TED talk about happiness and you would love it too, just because I know how much you love this topic. And they were talking about the difference. I think it was between synthetic happiness and normal happiness or something like that. And how we think we have to chase like normal happiness, but oftentimes synthetic happiness is almost like making the best out of every situation, regardless of the outcome. And I think that's also, I mean, it seems to me based off of how you reflect on these stories, that that's like how you also look back on your life. When you look back on your life, what do you think is one of the most maybe life-shaping moments that really pivoted you onto, like what was one of those rooms or what was one of those doors that you, you know, mentioned that really maybe changed the trajectory that you look back on? And it can be good or bad. Other than the human being I used to be, the only thing that might have been bad turned out to have a huge silver lining. And that was the fact that I spent seven years trying to establish myself and never succeeding financially and not mm. realizing that while I was trying to do this, I was learning so much about the investment side and looking at it from a perspective that normal investment people didn't have. And, but, but all the rooms, as I say, um, from, from, from Calcutta to, well, the Jesuits in Calcutta. <laughs> they taught us to, to live in a, a, sec, a secular kind of society that, that was diverse and tolerant. I mean, it's again, Jewish Jewish kid in a Jesuit school in India, but I mean... I've never heard of a Jewish kid in India before. Is that well, a, a subgroup? Small groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's a group of native Indian Jews um, down in Kerala, hmm. but okay. all the others up above really came from Baghdad and Aleppo in the Middle East. Hmm. And in, in, our, in our class alone, we had this is being a Jesuit school, we had Catholics, we had Protestants. This being India, we had Hindus, we had Muslims, we had Sikhs, we had Parsis, we had Jews, all in my class of 45 people. Mm, and so we, we, we knew we were different, but we didn't behave any differently from kids anywhere else. And, and as I say, this was, this was tolerant and diverse and, 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 sec, and secular. We didn't have to take um, catechism classes. The, 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 the non-Catholics were allowed to take moral instruction instead, which is kind of philosophical, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, we, we had such dedicated and brilliant teachers. A, f a few years ago, a couple of guys from our class bumped into each other in the bear and said, oh, what are you doing here? Oh, I live here. Oh, I live here too. Oh, really? Are you in touch with anyone? Well, I'm in touch with so-and-so. I'm in touch with so-and-so. And via email within 48 hours, probably 15 of the class of 45 were in touch with each other. And so we decided we, we've, we've got to get together. Well, there's only one place to rebond. So you go back to Calcutta. This was yeah, I was gonna ask you about this because I know that you yeah. returned to Calcutta kind of recently, right? Four, four years ago. Yeah, four Took years. Sue, she'd know, and this was the first, I, I left in 63. I'd never been back till whatever four years ago is, 2017. 50 odd years, I hadn't been back. And so, 
uh, we went nine, nine of us went back. We, we had we had six wives with us and um, we had to rebond there. And we, we said, where have you been? What have you done? And we'd, we'd worked as the CEO of, of India's biggest IT company, etc. was one of us. And we'd gone to university in India and in the UK and the States and Germany, heaven knows where else. And we all agreed that the education we got at St. Xavier's was the best thing that had ever happened to us and that we had not seen for our kids any better education anywhere else, anywhere in the various countries in the world we've been in. And we would just, and who, who would guess that in Calcutta, you'd end up with a Jesuit school. And, and so that was sort of element of luck number one, go to England, join Imperial Life. They send me to Toronto, meet Sue, try to, I have the confidence now to do my own thing. It isn't working. So in, in, in anger, two of us go, we talk to Russell and, um, but at the time, George's motto was, I hire smart people. And he hired smart people and said, I'm not sure exactly what you ought to do, but just come and see what's going on and find yourself something useful to do. And this was the kind of culture he, he cultivated. And so you ended up with a whole bunch of people who were very happy in what they were doing. And we ended up friends, not just, not just colleagues. And the reason I've lost touch is I'm not interested anymore because I have a new passion. And my new passion is ever since I retired, well, I didn't retire, I graduated from full-time work. And that was George Russell's phrase. I borrowed it from him. And, I, and everyone thinks it's mine. No, George made it up. God bless George. Mm -hmm. But ever since I graduated from full-time work, I've been interested in, in helping people with the transition from full-time work to part-time work or retirement and the emotional, psychological, and practical issues that come up, et cetera. And so my website, my last book, my next book are all on the subject, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, after I, after I retired, I thought, okay, now I've got time to really see how the brain is built. I can study this, thank goodness for the internet, because you don't have to travel to different places and hope the book you want is in the library. Um, you can study this. So how is the brain built? How does it affect the way we think? How does it affect rational versus emotional decisions? And Dan Danny, Danny Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for this. And I got to chat with Danny Kahneman because, and that made me think, oh, okay, so what does this say about happiness? And I ended up researching happiness in the various portions of the brain and how they, how they influenced happiness. And that happiness is not a goal. It's a, it's a byproduct. It's an emotional byproduct as you're doing other stuff. So I ended up writing a book on happiness and oh, the joy of doing this. And in fact, what, one, of my, one of my former colleagues, a, a Scottish colleague who I worked with in the London office, John Gillies, said, tell me about your book. I said, oh, let me tell you. He said, wait, wait, before, before you start, I have a question for you. Now that you've studied happiness, are you happier? Oh God, yes! I'm. Oh, in that case, I'm interested. Then, because because if I wasn't happier, who cares? Book <laughs> on happiness. But I mean, it's just the sheer joy, the excitement of doing all this kind of stuff because I have a passion for it and being able to do it. And it 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 it's again the luck of actually finding a passion that you didn't know you were going to have. Again, after I I, I retired. Um, and I thought my professional career was over kind of thing. A client I'd worked with 
came across me at a conference and said, you know, we're expanding enormously um, and we want to put together an investment committee and would you consider serving on it? So I came back and did it and it wasn't the investment side so much. The investments were just a means to an end. The end was really the philanthropies. And that gave me the kind of fulfillment I had never experienced before. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting questions that are coming up that I want to ask you, especially Mm -hmm. around retirement and some more about how much your life has changed. But before we go there, I'm actually curious to go back to that, you know, maybe, maybe not 10 years old, but let's say 17, 18, just around the time you started uni. If you had thought back then about what your life would transpire to be like, I mean, you probably had no idea about all these amazing things you would have accomplished. Was Is there anything that would you would have told that young adolescent on the cusp of adulthood about life that you've now learned in all of your time that you didn't know back then? Whoever said life is a journey, yes, it really is. And enjoy yourself along the way. I mean, I... I think that's been one of the big lessons to me. Don't get over-concentrated on things. Um, if, you are, if you are lucky enough, and, and many people, I don't know, maybe most people aren't, but many people aren't. If you are lucky enough to find a form of work that you love doing it, and you would do it for love, but you happen to get paid for it as well, that's, that's the ultimate. Things don't stay the same. Things change. Relationships change. And just just don't take yourself too seriously. Keep going. See what happens next. Try things. I mean, to be lucky, you have to give luck a chance. There are already three stages to luck, and you don't control the middle bit. You have to give luck a chance. I mean, this is, this is the, the story of the guy who was praying to the Lord, saying, Lord, you know, I keep telling you I want to win the lottery. I keep telling you it's the only thing I ask you for. And, you know, you have never done it. I keep asking you for that. And the good Lord told him, and I keep telling you, first, you have to buy a ticket. <laughs> so so you, you, you've got to do the preparatory work to give luck a chance. Now, whether luck happens or not, people say you make your own luck. I don't believe that for a moment. I didn't make any of this, but I gave luck an opportunity to happen. And it happened to me many, many times. And then the bit for the future is when you get it, recognize it and enjoy it and make the most of it. Don't give it away. I mean, so, I mean, I, I, I can remember when I was at Russell, we, we had in the New York office, a number of us would, would form a little syndicate and buy lottery tickets for the millions um, every week. And I said, oh, a million bucks. I said, well, you know, it may be a million, but you don't actually get a million. No, no, well, you got to pay tax on it. And you'd, a million is over 20 years. You don't get it in a lump sum. So we calculated it and you end up with, a, with an after-tax lump sum of about a third of a million. So you got to win three million to actually get a million. Okay, so what would you do? What would you do with a million bucks? Well, and so I said, that's our exercise for next week. Let's get, let's get back together next week. And so everyone said, here's what I do. Here's what I do. Here's what I do. And it was fantastic. And we would all do wonderful things. And I said, you know, this is really terrific because what you're really buying for your buck or two bucks or whatever it was is not really so much the chance of winning because it's highly unlikely. You're really buying a dream. So the more you fleshed out the dream, the more value you're getting for your money, even if you never win. 
Okay, what would you do with the second million? Oh, I oh, etc. 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 Do all kind. Would you stop working? Well, I could stop working now, but thank God they they had they had remembered all the things we talked about about inflation. By the by the time I'm old, I mean I won't be able to live on this salary or any. And so we said we were actually going to form a little syndicate and 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 form charit our own little charities. And we would pool it together for investment purposes. We ended up learning so much about what we would do with the money. The one thing I was sure of was that if we actually won, we would not be in the newspapers as they blew their lottery winnings. And that's the thing: you, when you get luck, make the most of it. <laughs> you touched on something really interesting when you said uh, you don't make luck. That- you create the opportunity for luck to come to you. Yes. Whether it comes or not, you don't control, but you do control the way in which you give it a chance to happen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And like in your experience, do you feel like it's been more about luck or hard work that's gotten you some of the things that you have had and experienced? Well, both. The, the hard work is what gave luck the chance to happen, mm. but the luck needn't have happened. The but how about luck, that, like that in terms good. of uh, in terms of birth order or something? Like we're born into a certain environment. Oh, oh, oh. is that too complicated? No, in fact, that's 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 the the first element of luck. Just mm. being, for example, being born in in this day and age. Mm. So I'm I'm born with a certain genetic makeup, and part of it is the way my brain works. Well, if I'd been born a thousand years ago. I'm not exactly the world's strongest person. I'd have been a serf somewhere, not terribly good at plowing the fields and so on. What would I have done? Just being able, being born at the time I was, at a time when the kinds of skills that my brain was able to develop were handsomely rewarded. That was good. I mean, I, I can I can imagine what would have happened if I'd been born a thousand years ago as a serf. I mean, I, I either I'd have I'd have died of malnutrition because I, I'm not terribly strong or you know the 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 squire of the manor would have have taken me aside and said I like the way this guy's mind works and so he's going to be my right hand man in which case I would have died when he lost a war and I'd have been executed along with him or or I'd have been I'd have been executed even earlier than that just for for seditious thinking but I, I would not have thrived a thousand years ago so even when you get the I, I don't know about birth order, just the fact that I was born at the time I was. And at the time I was in, in this bizarre combination of a Jewish kid in India whose family emigrated to England. And so it was natural for me to go to England. I had no idea. I have no imagination. If you ask me what is next year going to be like, I don't know. I'll hope it's not like last year, but it was more like the year before. But what changes do I see? Absolutely zero idea. So, like, what were the surprises in my career, in my life? Everything, everything. I have absolutely no imagination. And the kids get to me, Dad, for God's sake, think about this. I don't know. My brain doesn't work that way. I'm, I'm inadequate. I have um, an analytical brain, and I have nothing on the practical side and, and nothing on the creative side at all. I'm concentrated, genetically, I'm concentrated on the an- analytical side. In fact, I want to write a piece on different forms of intelligence because I'm high on the IQ side, but on the emotional side and on the creative side, etc., 
I'm absolutely hopeless. But people don't think of that as intelligence because IQ is the way we do it. Put, put me in front of, a, of, of any piece of water that doesn't work. I panic. Absolutely. I'm terrified of water because it spreads the way a gas does, but it, but it has the same solid effect that a solid has. It's the worst of all worlds from the point of view of doing damage at home. So I'm terrified of water. And my friends, my friends, they, they laugh. They laugh at me. But that's okay. I, I've now learned to laugh at myself. That's the biggest sign of growth, I think, and like self-awareness. But I also, I mean, Grandma Dawn, you you sell yourself a little short on that front because when, and I'm sure Liv can agree just based off of this one conversation, but whenever I talk to you, and at least as long as I've known you and my relationship with you, I find you to be incredibly self-aware and so engaged and present and interested in learning and not every, I think of Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory to go back to that comparison. And it didn't ever seem like he really cared that much. But every time I'm present with you, you've done nothing but show how much you love and care for me and my family. So and you, 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 you didn't know me when I was 50 years old. Right. I'm speaking to who I know you as, like, <laughs> from my journey with my relationship with you. Yeah. But... That's how I see you and that's how I have seen you. And I'm sure other people who have crossed your path feel the same way, you know, and we all have different gifts and talents at the end of the day. So it would be incredibly boring if everybody on earth was just this one way. And, but the, the upside of that is what you touched on also in this conversation in this episode is like how adaptable we are at the same time, as long as you're open to it, I think, that th- just that notion, I think, is what you do have in such a strength is your openness to to change and to learn and to grow. It, it's just part of learning. As I say, I've, I've had this deeply curious mind all the time. And so learning about myself is part of it, too. I don't like talking about myself. I'd much rather talk about what I've learned on other subjects and technical stuff. It's I love doing that. <laughs> I have no nerves when I do that at all. I love it. Talking about myself makes me nervous, but you've you've been very, very kind and very gentle and very generous. So so this this has actually been fun. I'm glad. On on that note, I'd love to know what you learn about yourself in retirement. And then what do you think you are the most proud of in all of these incredible things you've accomplished over the years? Oh, proud is easy, none of it, because none of it was my achievement things happened. That was wonderful. To the extent I've I've achieved anything, it's not consciously. It's just, we have a couple of great kids. In a sense, it's an achievement, but (laughs) that wasn't the the purpose of the the achievement. I think what what I'm happiest about is that, as I say, I have not been thrown out of my family or my extended family. They've stayed with me and when they laugh at me, I have the strong feeling that they're laughing affectionately rather than any other way. What's something you've learned about yourself in retirement? Like, has retirement oh, been a good experience for oh, you? the best time lonely? of life. No, no, the best time of life. In fact, I call it life too. And everyone thinks, well, okay, why? And it was life after full-time work. But you keep saying life after full That's a mouthful. So what do you do in my profession? You create an acronym. Life after full-time work, L-A-F-T-W-O, 
L-A-F-T-W-O, laugh too. And I could suddenly hear a Texan friend of mine saying life too. <laughs> and, and so I thought, okay, so now it's a life on its own. What do you do? What education do you need for it? Because we wouldn't go into life one without an education. I mean, both from a societal point of view and from an individual point of view, it helps. And so life two, one day will need an education just the way life one does. The subjects won't be history, geography, math. They'll be finance, emotional stuff, practical stuff. But, but that's what you learn. But um, it's, it's freedom. It's not retirement. I hate the word. I hate the concept retirement. It's freedom. It's suppose you suddenly came into a whole bunch of money. You wouldn't retire, but it would give you freedom. What would you do with the freedom? What would you do if you don't need to do someone else's bidding for a paycheck? What if you had your own series of paychecks? That's the way to think of retirement. The earlier it comes, then the better. So I, I, can, I, I, I wrote a blog post about the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. Yeah, and I, and my that's my dream. <laughs> was, uh, financial independence, yes, retire early, no. Not, not in the traditional sense of retirement. And then a week or so ago, I saw some, I can't remember what I was looking at. I saw someone who said, I don't believe in FIRE, F-I-R-E, I believe in FILE, financial independence, live early. Mm. Yes. Yes, that's what you want. Such a good spin. It's the independence you want, and it's the freedom. And so I actually wrote a book called Freedom, Time, Happiness. Because when you retire, you've got the freedom, you've got the time, and together they give you the happiness, etc. And so I just keep, I just keep learning and I keep writing. March is my writing month, so I'm getting ready. This year I can't go to Florida to get away from it all, get the sunshine, and and write. So I'll, I'll have to look at images of florida on my laptop <laughs> to get myself in the mood but but i i I've, I've got all kinds of ideas about just writing about freedom and how how you should think about that when you're just starting after university and when you're halfway through your life and when you're about to do the fearful thing and retire etc but all of them should be with the idea that this it's positive and this is freedom and in fact, there's something called the U-curve of happiness. If you plot people's reported happiness by age, it's a U-curve. We're happiest at the start. Hey, we know nothing. We're going to save the world and all that good stuff. But things are good. And, and, and then life starts and there are lots of joys, but, but there are also bits where it's a grind and things get you down, et cetera, et cetera. And somewhere around 50 or thereabouts. In my case, purely by chance, it happened to be at 50 where you sort of hit bottom. And I think for some people, it's a cathartic experience. For others, it's much more gradual. But somewhere around then, you start to realize things are never going to be perfect. But you know, they're pretty good. And pretty good is pretty good. And it's enough. And, and Herbert Simon won the Nobel Prize in 1978, for partly based on his regenerating the word satisfice. It sounds like satisfy and suffice. It's actually an old Scottish word that, that has that meaning. But it, it's saying, set your standards high. And when you reach them, be happy with that. That's fine. Don't keep saying, no, 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 that's not good enough. A little more, a little more. Don't be a perfectionist. A, you'll never know if you've achieved perfection. And B, the energy and negative spirits you get saying, damn it, I need to get there. You'll never get there. Satisfies. Yeah. So all, 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 the, all that kind of stuff helps enormously as you live your life and so 
to after age 50, you start to think that way and then, and then your happiness goes up. By the time you're 70, reported happiness is higher than it was at 20. Wow. But this is the best time of life. This is the best time of life. And, and I'm actually experiencing it in real time. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Oh man, so many good pieces of wisdom and knowledge and firsthand experience that was so interesting. And I totally co-sign on everything you said about, yeah, not living from that place of scarcity and always wanting more, but just kind of, or I've heard somewhere recently, like, don't just always try to be happy, like look at being happy enough and have like gratitude and feel the abundance in your life. And also the more I think you marinate in those feelings, the more you tend to attract more like luck or more of those positive outcomes, you know, because you're always going to have that mindset, I guess, at the end of the day. Well, happiness is a side effect. Right. You cannot make it a goal because there is nothing concrete that defines happiness. It's a side effect. So enjoy it as you seek other goals and etc. I love that. Well, we're going to finish with a last question, our signature. Who are you really? Huh. Well, I'm a human being. At that stage, you've probably said it all because everything else is detail. I'm a human animal as opposed to some other kind of animal. After that, the differences are marginal. So I'm a lucky human being. Yeah, well, you know enough about that now as to why I think of myself that way. But that, that's all. I, 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 don't, I don't define myself any other way. I think what would be more interesting would be the extent and the way in which I may be remembered afterwards. I mean, there have been billions of people on Earth now, and there have been even more billions before. We don't remember any of them. Most of us will be gone. And if in the next generation, maybe a generation after that, if I'm really lucky, if, if I'm remembered fondly, and with affection, with a smile, when people think of me. And, well, inevitably, there'll be laughter as well because of some of the stupid things that people will remember. But that's a joy, too. That's a joy, too. I want, the, I want them to have joyous feelings when they think about me. And if, if some people think of me that way after I'm gone, I think I will have had a very successful life. Easy for me to think of you that way, Grandpa Don. Thank so you. Easy. Thank you. I'll always well, be looking, I, thinking of you and talking about you with great affection. Thank you. Thank you. A very beautiful answer. And I love the extension of our final question to not just who are you really on this planet today, but who are you really going to be remembered as? And mm. on that note, Don, you know, while we still have your wisdom and energy and your vivacity for the next, who knows, 25 years to come, you're young, 76, you know, people yeah. are living 110 these days. Well, actually, you said, if you look at my parents and their siblings, there were five of them, they all went past 90. So there again, you go. So for the next- I'm, I'm an extreme again. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure Sue, Sue wants me to last quite that long, but that's her <laughs> problem, not yours. <laughs> as long as you can afford the plane tickets, like you said, but 
John, if anyone uh, who's listening to this is interested in reaching out to you or contacting you or learning more about those really interesting books you've mentioned, I know I'd love to maybe read one of the ones you touched on about happiness. How can people find you? Well, the website is donezra.com. Easy. The simplest thing. And uh, my email is donezra at me, M-E dot com. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on air with us today. My pleasure, totally. Thank you. It was so nice to have you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Who Are You Really? We'll be back next Thursday. Same time, same place. You can listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at Who Are You Really Podcast. Or feel free to join our Facebook group, The Humans of Who Are You Really, to connect to some of the people who have been on air and other deep thinkers and feelers. If you liked this episode and want to continue listening, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts and stories. Until next time, sending love to you wherever you are.